Well, welcome back. We are continuing in our series, Heroes of Faith. And hopefully you've been able to join in the last couple weeks as we've talked about these different lives of people in Scripture, of how we can learn from their lives and from their examples of faith and apply that to our own journey as we seek after the Lord. And so today we're going to look at another example of faith today as we continue in this series. Before we do, let's pray together. Jesus, thank you so much uh, for your word. Thank you that you have given it to us, that you sustain us through it. We thank you that it is alive and active and that every time that we come to it, you have something to teach us. And so, Lord, as we open it together today, I pray that you would give us open ears and soft hearts to hear what you have to say. And Lord, may we be changed through it, through your work in our lives. We pray this in Jesus' matchless name. Amen. Well, many of you probably don't know, but when my daughter, Mercy, when we found out we were pregnant with Mercy, we went and got an ultrasound at around 20 weeks to look at all those growth elements and see how she was growing. And as they did the ultrasound, one of the things that the tech noticed was that Mercy had an abnormality in her heart. She had what's called a bovine arch in her heart. And we had had uh, Silas previously who had had a heart defect, and so they were looking a little bit more closely at some of those things to see if Mercy's heart was normal or if she had any issues. And so they informed us that they saw this bovine arch and they wanted to send us to the Denver Children's Hospital to get another look at her heart from an ultrasound tech at the Children's Hospital. And so we spent that time as we waited for that appointment praying and asking that the Lord would work a miracle, that the Lord would work in Mercy's heart, and that he would heal it. So the day came for us to go to the hospital and go to this ultrasound appointment, and the tech looked at Mercy's heart and said, her heart is completely fine. There's nothing wrong with her heart. And she said, I know the tech who did the ultrasound before, and I believe that that tech knew what they were doing, but I see a heart that is completely healthy. I remember leaving that appointment and feeling a mix of emotions, feeling uh, joy, feeling praise that the Lord had healed her, but also having that question of, was it just a coincidence? Could it be that maybe the first tech just did get it wrong and saw something there that wasn't there? Is it actually that God worked a miracle in my daughter's life, or is it just a coincidence? How many of you have had moments like these in your own lives? Perhaps maybe not healings, but times when you've questioned if something was just a coincidence, or if God's hand was at work in your life. Now, following that, I made a decision that I believe God truly healed mercy, and I always want to err on the side of giving God praise and credit when he works miracles, as opposed to taking it from him and chalking it up to a coincidence. But I think that question does come up in our lives at times of whether it's a coincidence or whether it's God working. And so I did some digging. I looked up what a coincidence is by definition. And it's defined by Merriam-Webster as the occurrence of events that happen at the same time by accident, but seem to have some connection. And in our world, even in the church setting, I've found that people often are quicker to say that things happen by accident than that things have come about by God's miraculous work in their lives. And I want to introduce a word to you today that maybe you're familiar with, maybe you're not, uh, but it's a word that I think is important as we examine our hero of faith today. And that word is providence, and more specifically, God's providence. John Piper, who is a pastor, pastored for many years, wrote a book about God's providence called Providence. It's a 752-page book all about the providence of God. 
And he describes God's providence as being the act of purposefully providing for or sustaining or governing the world. Now, a couple weeks ago when we talked about Noah, I introduced the concept of a catechism to our church. The idea that uh, there would be a question about something theological or faith that then there would be a response to, so you could kind of memorize and learn these, these uh, theological points. So I looked up the Heidelberg Catechism for the question of God's providence and what is it, and this is what it said. That God's providence is the almighty and everywhere present power of God, whereby, as it were, by his hand he still upholds heaven and earth with all creatures, and so governs them that herbs and grass, rain and drought, fruit and barren years, meat and drink, health and sickness, riches and poverty, yea, all things come not by chance, but by his fatherly hand. And in that same catechism, it gives you uh, the answer as to why you should study this, why it matters to know about God's providence. And here's the answer. It says that we may be patient in adversity, thankful in prosperity, and for what is future have good confidence in our faithful God and Father, that no creature shall separate us from his love, since all creatures are so in his hand, that without his will they cannot so much as move. And that quotes Matthew 10, 29, are not two sparrows sold for a cent, and yet not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your Father. Now you may be wondering, why am I taking so much time talking about God's providence rather than talking about a single hero of faith? Well, it's because God's providence is truly the reason why our hero of faith today, why their story is so important. Today we're going to be looking at the story of Esther from the Old Testament book of Esther. And the interesting thing about the story of Esther that maybe you've heard before is it's a 10-chapter book, and in those 10 chapters, the name of God, Yahweh, is not mentioned one time. In fact, this is a reason why many people throughout history have actually tried to say the book of Esther shouldn't even be in the Bible because it never mentions the name of God. But while God's name is not mentioned, his fingerprints are all throughout the story of Esther. God's providence is evident throughout the story from beginning to end. And so it's my hope that today, as we look at the story of Esther through the lens of God's providence in her life and in the life of the Jews that she is with, that you would be encouraged in your daily walk, no matter what good or bad may come your way. So if you would turn with me to the book of Esther, we're going to be reading all 10 chapters. Just joking, we're not reading 10 chapters today. We're going to piece through it, but try to make it through kind of the main concepts of these 10 chapters together. Uh, So it's going to be on the screen at times. I'm going to be sharing some of the story with you as well, but you can follow along if you want in the Bible, and I would encourage all of you to go back and read the whole book. It's a phenomenal book that has a lot to teach us, but we can't do a deep dive through 10 chapters in one Sunday. So the book of Esther is truly an amazing story that's filled with God's provision and providence. The book takes place roughly 483 B.C. to 473 B.C. during the first half of the reign of King Ashuerus. So in chapter 1, the book starts by introducing the King Ashuerus to us and his massive empire. He has 127 provinces. His empire stretches from Ethiopia to the edges of India. And we see also in this first chapter that he likes to party. He throws this massive party in the first chapter that lasts many days and includes an excess of food and drink. 
And on the seventh day of the feast, the king demands that his queen, Queen Vashti, is brought before the king and his party for the sole purpose of showing her off. Now, she had had her own party that she had thrown for the women, so we know that it would have been him and a bunch of guys gathered around. They've eaten too much, they've drank too much, and now he's demanding that his queen come so he can parade her in front of everyone and show off her beauty. In fact, verse 10 of chapter 1 tells us that he does this in order to show the people and the princes her beauty, for she was lovely to look at. Now, Queen Vashti refuses his request which was totally unacceptable to the king and totally unacceptable in this time period and angered the king that in front of his guests, the queen would refuse his demand that she comes before them. Not only is he angered that she refused his demand, but everybody starts to worry, what will the other wives do? If the other wives hear about what the queen did and how she stood up to her husband and refused his request, they may start refusing our request as well. And so the king decides that something must be done. And so he removes Vashti's queen and moves forward without a queen. Well, we move forward into chapter 2, picking up in verse 1. We're going to read some of the text and see what it says. And starting in verse 1, chapter 2, it says, After these things, when the anger of King Ashuerus had abated, he remembered Vashti and what she had done and what had been decreed against her. Then the king's young men who attended him said, let beautiful young virgins be sought out for the king, and let the king appoint officers in all the provinces of his kingdom to gather all the beautiful young virgins to a harem in Susa, the citadel, under the custody of Haggai, the king's eunuch, who is in charge of the women. And let their cosmetics be given them, and let the young woman who, woman who pleases the king be queen instead of Vashti. And this pleased the king, and he did so. So the estimates of how many people were in this kingdom we're like, at the time, there were probably like 50 million people in all the provinces. So if you're thinking half of those are women, they're going through 25 million women and deciding who are the most beautiful, who are the best of the best, and bring them together. The estimates suggest that there are about 400 women that would have been brought to Susa, to the citadel, to undergo these beauty treatments, to be prepared and sent before the king so that he could pick his next queen. Now, there was a period, a little gap in the time between when the king got rid of Queen Vashti and when he decides he needs a new queen. And during this period, we know from history that the king was continuing in his military progress of trying to continue conquering the world, but he had had some defeats. He was not victorious during this time period, and so he's come back defeated, dejected, and needs a distraction and remembers, oh yeah, I don't have a queen. I don't have someone to comfort me, and so he decides that it's time to get a queen. So the king's officers gather the young virgins and prepare them to meet the king so that he can hand-select his next queen. And this sets the stage for us to be introduced to two of the main characters within the story of Esther, Mordecai and Esther. Look at verse 5 of chapter 2 with me. It says, Now there was a Jew in Susa the citadel whose name was Mordecai, the son of Jer, son of Shimei, son of Kish, a Benjamite, who had been carried away from Jerusalem among the captives carried away with Jeconiah, the king of Judah, whom Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, had carried away. He was bringing up Hadassah, that is Esther, the daughter of his uncle, for she had neither father nor mother. The young woman had a beautiful figure and was lovely to look at. And when her father and mother died, Mordecai took her as his own daughter." So the text tells us that here we have Mordecai, who is one of the descendants of those who had been carried away from Jerusalem in the exile by King Nebuchadnezzar. 
Now, King Nebuchadnezzar conquered Israel around 597, so roughly a century earlier than when our story is currently taking place. And we see in the text that Esther, her parents have died. Thus, her uncle Mordecai has taken her in. He's been the one who's raising her. He's been the one who's caring for her. And she's described as having a beautiful figure and being lovely to look at. So she is one of those who's selected to go to the king's palace, to be given these extensive beauty treatments, to essentially take part in a beauty contest to see who would be the next queen. Included in this was a six-month treatment of oil and myrrh, and then a six-month treatment for these women with spices and ointments. Now, I don't know a whole lot about these beauty treatments, but a year of spices and ointments and oils and myrrh seems a little bit overkill to me, but that's what they go through. So they spend this whole year preparing to go and meet the king, and they get to go before him and essentially have this one opportunity to see if the king will pick them to be his queen. So remember, we're talking probably like 25 million women down to 400 women down to one. And when it was Esther's turn to go before the king, she won favor in his eyes, and he took her to be his queen. It tells us in chapter 2, verse 17, that the king loved Esther more than all the women, and she won grace and favor in his sight more than all the virgins, so that he set the royal crown on her head and made her queen instead of Vashti. So here we see an obscure Jewish orphan, a child of exiled people, exalted to the highest position that any woman could have in the entire world at the time. And this is no coincidence. There is something going on here that is greater than the king, that is greater than his plan for a queen. God is orchestrating his own purpose through the affections of the king. Now, he doesn't know that Esther is a Jew. She's kept that aspect of her life a secret, and her cousin Mordecai has encouraged her to not share the fact that she is a Jew. So, chapter 2 ends with an important few verses that tell us that while Mordecai was sitting at the king's gate, he overhears a plot by two of the king's officials to try to kill the king. So, Mordecai, Esther's cousin, hears that people are going to try to kill the king, and he tells Esther, who's queen at this time, lets her know, and the report's found out to be true, and the two men are hanged for their treason, and the event is recorded in the book of Chronicles, the text tells us. Now, in this time period, they were writing down everything, all the history they would write down in the books, and they would keep a, a detailed history of what occurs, and that will be important later as we move forward in the story. I know we're only on chapter 3, but I promise you we're going to make it through all 10 chapters and the whole story of Esther this morning. So hang with me. So chapter 3, we're introduced to the next character who's an important character in the story, and that's the evil Haman, Haman the Agagite. Now Haman is placed in a position of power over all the other officials. He's part of, uh, his role is one that deems him as so important that when he travels around, people bow before him. And he expects this. He is arrogant. He is prideful. He thinks he is the best out there besides the king. And so as he goes about the city, he expects that the men who see him would bow before him, that the women would bow before him out of reverence and respect. And this occurs. As he goes throughout the city and people see him, they drop to a knee and they bow before him. Everyone except Mordecai. Mordecai refuses to bow before Haman. 
Mordecai knows that it is not right to bow before anyone but God, and so he refuses to bow down before Haman, and this drives Haman crazy. His anger builds and grows within him. He hates the fact that this one man, Mordecai, will not bow before him, that he shows him disrespect in this regard. Now, our text continually mentions that Haman is Haman the Agagite. And I've read Esther many times. I've studied Esther, and I never quite understood why Haman gets so mad at Mordecai and at the Jewish people. Why Haman just can't let it go that this one guy won't bow down before him. And so I did a little bit of digging and research this week, and I found that there's a reason why the text mentions multiple times that this is Haman the Agagite. And maybe this is not going to be new to you, but this was new to me, so I want to share it with you. But we have to go back in time to understand what's going on here and why this is an important detail that the author gives us. So if we go back about a thousand years to when the Israelites come out of Egypt, the Exodus, which we're all familiar with. And that happened around 1445 B.C. And in the 17th chapter of Exodus, Israel is attacked by the Amalekites. Because they attack the Jews, God curses the Amalekites. In Deuteronomy chapter 25, God tells them that one day the Amalekites will be extinct because they attacked God's people. Four centuries later, King Saul, Israel's first king, comes on the scene. And he's given instructions by God to attack the Amalekites and to completely destroy everyone who exists there. But King Saul disobeys God's command. King Saul attacks the Amalekites. He wipes almost everybody out, but he saves the king. He doesn't kill the king, King Agag. He saves him and keeps him back Now, Saul had been instructed to kill the Amalekites, not let anyone live, and he disobeyed the Lord. And due to Saul's disobedience, his throne is removed from him. The prophet Samuel shows up and lets Saul know that he messed up, lets him know that he neglected to follow God's orders at what God had asked him to do. Now, King Agag at this point thinks that he's doing all right. He thinks, well, I've been captured, but I wasn't wasn't killed, so it's going to be okay. But the prophet Samuel has King Agag brought before him, and he kills him because God had instructed that the Amalekites were to be wiped out, that this city they were sent to attack would be destroyed. Now, history was well known during this time period. It was conveyed through the centuries and through the years, and Haman would have known that it was a Jewish man who killed his royal ancestor. You see, Haman would have come from that line of the Amalekites, the Agites, and King Agag would have been his ancestor. And so he knew that it was a Jew who had killed his ancestor. And that's why he has such a deep hatred for Mordecai and for the Jews. And on top of that, Mordecai would have come through the line of King Saul. We see as it talks about his line and that he's a Benjamite, that that was the line of King Saul. So Haman is completely distraught over the fact that Mordecai won't bow before him, and he hates the Jews, and he hates Mordecai. And so he goes to the king with his fury, and he lets the king know there's this group of people who are different than we are. There's this group of people who don't keep the king's laws the same way, and he encourages the king to destroy the Jews. The king gives Haman his signet ring and allows him to issue an edict that the Jews will be completely destroyed It says in the text that with instructions to destroy, to kill, and to annihilate all Jews, young and old, women and children, 
And all this is to occur on the 13th day of the 12th month. Now in chapter 4, we see how Mordecai responds when he hears about it. In verse 1, it says, when Mordecai learned all that had been done, Mordecai tore his clothes and put on sackcloth and ashes and went out into the midst of the city and cried out with a loud and bitter cry. He went up to the entrance of the king's gate, for no one was allowed to enter the king's gate clothed in sackcloth. The reality of the situation is bleak. The Jews knew that with what had been decreed that they were facing a mass genocide, that it had been sanctioned by the king. Mordecai goes up to the king's gate to publicly mourn what has occurred, ensuring that Esther would hear about it as well. And Esther hears about what has happened. She's informed of the decree that Haman has put into place, and her uncle encourages her that it is time for her to reveal her identity as a Jew and go to the king and plead for her people's lives. But Esther knows it's not that easy. You see, Esther hasn't been summoned before the king in quite a while. And for her to go before the king without being summoned was risking death. You see, if she shows up before the king and he doesn't extend her royal scepter to her, she will be killed for approaching him. So she knows that there is a risk with her going before the king and breaking the royal protocol. Look at chapter 4 and verse 11 to see the message that Esther sends to Mordecai. She says, All the king's servants and the people of the king's provinces know that if any man or woman goes to the king inside the inner court without being called, there is but one law to be put to death, except the one to whom the king holds out the golden scepter so that he may live. But as for me, I have not been called to come into the king these 30 days. So that's her response when Mordecai tells her she needs to make an effort to save her people. But Mordecai responds to encourage Esther that she must move forward. Look at verse 12. They told Mordecai what Esther had said, and then Mordecai told them to reply to Esther. Do not think to yourself that in the king's palace you will escape any more than all the other Jews. For if you keep silent at this time, relief and deliverance will rise for the Jews from another place, but you and your father's house will perish. And who knows whether you have not come to the kingdom for such a time as this. Mordecai knows the covenants of God. He recognizes that while God has placed Esther here at this time, for this moment, that if she chooses not to act, that God will find another way to save Israel. He knows that God will not abandon them. But this last part of verse 14, often quoted, and rightfully so, because it's such a beautiful picture of God's providence, that God has placed Esther here at this moment to play a substantial role in rescuing the Jews. Mordecai says, Who knows whether you have not come to the kingdom for such a time as this? Now, looking on the outside in, we can know that obviously Esther is there for such a time as this, that obviously God has orchestrated it from 25 million women down to 400, down to one, that she would be chosen so that she can be in the palace and have this chance to save her people. So in chapter 5, we see Esther go into the king's court, risking her life. She has courage to take this step of faith, and she wins favor as the king extends his royal scepter to her inviting her into his presence. And she responds not by sharing what's going on with him, but inviting the king and Haman to a feast the next day. Now Haman is overjoyed that he would be included with the king and the queen for this feast. 
So he leaves the king's palace thinking this is just great, and yet sees Mordecai once again refusing to bow. He goes home filled with wrath and with his wife and friends comes up with a plan that he is going to hang Mordecai. And so he has some gallows built in his yard that he's planning to hang Mordecai upon. Well, in chapter 6, that book that I talked about where they write down the history comes back into play because the king can't sleep. The king's having a hard time sleeping at night and decides what's the best way to sleep? Bring in the history books. Bring in the history books and read them to me and hopefully that'll put me to sleep. And as the royal records are brought in and read to him, it happens, not by chance, but by God's providence, that what's read to the king is the historical account of Mordecai saving his life when two people were going to kill him. And this is read about this foiled plot to the king, and he asks, what was done to honor Mordecai? Did we ever do anything to honor his saving my life? And he finds out that nothing was done to honor Mordecai. So the king knows that something must happen. Something must occur to honor Mordecai for his role he played. So the next day, as the day begins, Haman comes into the king's court, and the king asks Haman, how should I honor someone who the king delights in? Now Haman is so full of himself that he thinks, surely the king is talking about me. So he tells the king, well, you should get the royal robes, put the royal robes on this man, uh, that you should get the riding on, ride him on a horse, on the king's horse, through the city, declaring out loud, thus shall it be done to the man whom the king delights to honor. So essentially, dress him up in all the finest clothes, give him all the accolades, parade him through the city, declaring this is what happens when the king delights in you. And much to Haman's surprise, the king tells him to go and get Mordecai and do that for him that Haman would be the one to lead Mordecai through the city, declaring that this is who the king delights in. Mordecai, who Haman was hoping to hang on the gallows, who disgusted him, who he hated, now he has to honor in this time. It just makes him angrier. Well, at that feast that Haman and the king and Esther had, Esther can't quite get up the strength to ask for what truly she wants, so she asks for a feast for the next day. And in chapter 7, king, the king and Haman come once again for a feast with Queen Esther. And he asks her, the king asks Esther, what is it that you wish? Even up to half my kingdom, I will grant it to you. Well, Esther gets up the courage to finally tell the king what's going on, to finally reveal to the king her true identity as a Jew. Look with me at chapter 7, verse 3. It says, Then Queen Esther answered, if I have found favor in your sight, O king, and if it please the king, let my life be granted me for my wish and my people for my request. For we have been sold, I and my people, to be destroyed, to be killed, and to be annihilated. If we had been sold merely as slaves, men and women, I would have been silent. But our affliction is not to be compared with the loss of the king. Then King Ashuerus said to Queen Esther, Who is he and where is he who has dared to do this? And Esther said, a foe and an enemy, this wicked Haman. And Haman was terrified before the king and the queen. Now the king can't believe what he's heard. He didn't really realize what had happened and what Haman was doing, which I don't think we should fully let him off the hook for that. I think he needed to have more of a role in what was occurring if he's ordering groups of people to be executed. But he is so angry at Haman 
that he gets up to just get a moment to think through and process. And Haman starts to beg for his life from Esther, trapping her essentially on the, the couch where she was sitting. And as the king comes back in, his fury reaches its boiling point with Haman. The king orders that Haman be taken. And a couple of the king's men let the king know that Haman had actually just set up some gallows to hang Mordecai on, and so the king orders that Haman be hung upon the gallows that he had prepared for Mordecai. In chapter 8, the king works with Esther and with Mordecai to send out a message of hope to the Jews, to let them know that they can defend themselves on this day, that they do not have to just sit idly by, but that they can attack their enemies on that day that even though the decree has been issued, that they can be destroyed, that they can fight back. This new edict gives the Jews permission to fight against their enemies, to gather together and to show their strength on that day they are meant for destruction. In chapter 10, we see that come to fruition. As this new edict gives them the permission they need, they gather together and they overpower their enemies. On a day that was meant for complete destruction of the Jewish people, what we see instead is that the enemies of the Jews fall on that day, including Haman's family. In order to remember what has happened, uh, they issue a day called Purim to remember what occurred. And look with me at chapter 9, verse 23. This kind of gives us an overview of what's occurred at the end. It says, So the Jews accepted what they had started to do and what Mordecai had written to them. For Haman the Agagite, the son of Hamadetha, the enemy of all the Jews, had plotted against the Jews to destroy them, and had cast pur, that is, cast lots, to crush and to destroy them. But when it came before the king, he gave orders in writing that his evil plan that he had devised against the Jews should return on his own head, and that he and his sons should be hanged on the gallows. Therefore, they called these days Purim after the term pur. Therefore, because of all that was written in this letter, and of what they had faced in this matter and what had happened to them, the Jews firmly obligated themselves and their offspring and all who joined them that without fail they would keep these two days according to what was written and at the time appointed every year. That these days should be remembered and kept throughout every generation in every clan, province, and city. And that these days of Purim should never fall into disuse among the Jews, nor should the commemoration of these days cease among their descendants." Now, in the Jewish culture, Purim is still celebrated today. This day where they celebrate what occurred, where they celebrate God's provision and how he used the courage of Esther is still celebrated. It has been passed down generation to generation, just as the text instructed that it would happen. And while the name of God wasn't mentioned throughout this story in the actual biblical text, one can see his providence throughout it his hand directing events from the beginning to the end so that people are in the right place at the right time to use them to deliver his people. Esther showed her faith and her courage by being willing to be used by God, risking her life to go before the king and to be a voice for her people. Esther is a hero of faith because of how she responded and trusted in God's provision and had the courage to walk into the king's inner courts and ask for an audience with the king. And there's a couple things that I want us to learn from the story of Esther and all that we've covered today. The first is a reminder that God uses ordinary people who are willing to be used by him. I want to share a quick story about a man named Bud Villers, and you've probably never heard of Bud. 
And there's a reason for that, but Bud was a good man. Pastor Quinn Pitts shares that he was his neighbor as he grew up, and Bud helped his dad put a roof on his home. He assisted his dad when they poured concrete sidewalks and did different projects around the house. And he said that he would often bring them fish as he would catch them. And he doesn't remember Bud talking a lot about religion when he was a kid, but it struck me that every Sunday morning, I saw Bud walking up the street with his Bible in hand. Rain or shine, Bud walked to church with a Bible in his hand every week. And this pastor says that every year he invited my younger brother and me to attend the VBS at the Nutter Fort Baptist Church. And most years we didn't go. But some years when some of my friends were going, I did go. He said then when I was about 15, Bud invited us to church on Sunday. I didn't go, but my younger brother did. And the next week he invited us again. And he said, again, I didn't go, but my brother started going two or three times a week. And I caught my brother reading his Bible. Months later, Bud was still inviting me, and I was still not interested. But he tells that then a singing group attended his school. They were college students, and the girls were really pretty. They performed several songs, and they told us that they were going to be going to church that evening, and they want us to come. So when he got home from school that day, when Bud came over and invited his little brother and him to come to church that evening... He thought about the singers from school who were going to be there, and so he went. But that night, he became a Christian, and his life has never been the same since, going on to become a pastor. He said, to my knowledge, Bud Villers never taught a Sunday school class, never preached a sermon, never held a position of leadership in the church. He was an usher, a faithful usher, a little shout out to you ushers. He simply lived a life of integrity and love for God and his family and his friends, and occasionally invited people to church. If Bud was an ice cream flavor, he would be vanilla, but he would be a haagen vanilla. And this story is great because it serves as a reminder that God can use and does use and will use ordinary faithfulness. It can be easy as believers to think that we need to have some dramatic story or interactions, but I believe that if we are willing that God will use each one of us to impact the lives of others for his glory. So don't downplay how much God can use you, but rather be willing to be used by him for his purposes in your life. The second thing I think the story of Esther teaches us is to step out in faith. Esther was willing to step out in faith, and the impact was felt throughout the 127 providences. She didn't know what would happen. She could have been killed for approaching the king, but she had faith in God and his calling upon her in that moment to represent the Jews and fight for their lives. And I believe that we too must be willing to step out in faith, to step into situations that we may find uncomfortable or unfamiliar, or maybe situations we don't even want to be in, but we believe that God has led us to those moments. And so we step forward with faith trusting God's provision, trusting that God will carry us through. So ask God to give you the courage to step out in faith and watch your faith deepen as you depend on Him in these moments. And lastly, may you be reminded through the story of Esther that God's timing is perfect. I think through the Scripture stories, of the different characters that we study about Esther, about Abraham, talking about the provision of the ram when he's about to sacrifice Isaac. You have David showing up at that moment when Goliath is taunting people and the Lord gives him the courage in that moment. I can think of stories in our church where we've seen God's timing and the per perfection of it. 
I could tell you countless stories in my life of where God's timing was perfect. Yet it can be so easy for us at times to think that we know best, to think that our timing is the right timing. And yet the reality is God's timing is the only perfect way. So find comfort in this fact that God is at work in your life and pray that God would give you wisdom to know his timing and to wait patiently as you seek it. Well, as we conclude the story on Esther, may we be reminded that the real hero in the story, the real power behind the story is the one who is never mentioned. It is God. That his hand of providence is manifested in every single tiny detail. His presence is more powerfully and dominantly visible here than maybe in any other story of this complexity in Scripture, even though he's never mentioned. And the message for you is this. While you're going through life and trying to make sure you fix all the little pieces of your life, understand this, that there is over and in and above your life the divine architect ordering every detail. And if you belong to him and are in covenant of his love, he is accomplishing his perfect will. And you can rest in that. You can rest in that.